Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. More than 65 million Americans are currently experiencing family estrangement. In his new book, Fault Lines, Sociologist Carl Pillemer presents a science-based guide on coping with and mending fractured families. Based on the first national survey on family estrangement, Fault Lines provides information on why rifts happen and what makes estrangement so painful, as well as tools and techniques for safe reconciliation. Get your copy of Fault Lines today from your favorite bookstore. Dr. Eli Karam back with you on the AAMFT podcast, and today we are going to talk about a model that no matter what your particular affiliation is in the world of psychotherapy, whether you're an MFT, a clinical social worker, a psychologist, a counselor, the most popular model, both in empirical support and in frequency of use, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And when we think of adapting cognitive behavioral therapy to working with couples. I think of two gentlemen, Norm Epstein and Don Balcom. Norm Epstein recently retired from a long and illustrious career in the Department of Family Studies at the University of Maryland in College Park. He received his doctorate in clinical psychology from UCLA in 1974. He'll tell you about his origins there today. His teaching, research, and professional publications have been focused on the understanding and treating of dysfunction in couple and family relationships, as well as the relationship between individuals and relationship functioning. He's developed and evaluated cognitive behavioral assessments and treatment procedures for distressed couples with his colleague Don. In addition, he's conducted empirical studies on depression and anxiety within the family context parent-child communication patterns, family stress and coping, and other cognitive factors in marital and family dysfunction. He's an APA fellow, a diplomat of the American Board of Assessment Psychology, and a founding fellow of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. He's also a clinical fellow and frequent presenter in the AAMFT. Don Balcom is a professor. He's the director of clinical psychology in the Department of Psychology at UNC. That's North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He received both his undergraduate and his doctorate from that university as well. And since that time, he's pursued research on couples with a variety of emphasis. He's conducted several investigations evaluating the efficacy of cognitive behavioral couples therapy. He also conducts intervention research around marital distress among newlyweds, as well as couple-based interventions for couples experiencing health problems. He's won multiple teaching awards, held an endowed chair at UNC. He's an American Psychological Association member and a founding fellow as well. 
of the, of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. I learned so much from these gentlemen today, and I will be back after the interview. Pleased to be joined by Don Balcom and Norm Epstein, founders of Cognitive Behavioral Couples Therapy. These guys are both scientists, practitioners in the true sense of the word, and we are going to talk about both the art and the science behind CBT for couples today. But the first question listeners to our show are familiar with, gentlemen, is how did you get interested in the field of couple therapy to start? Your origin story, so to speak. This is Norm. Thanks, Eli. I'm really uh, so happy to be doing this, uh, having this opportunity. It's great to have Um, you. Actually, when I was in high school, in my high school yearbook, it says that I, I wanted to be a psychologist. So, however, I came to that conclusion then. When I, I got to college, I majored in psychology. And it was sort of traditional psychology, you know, intro stuff and all that. When I uh, got to grad school, it's also at UCLA in clinical psychology. It was a really special time there. Some of the faculty members at, in the clinical program, uh, Mike Goldstein and Elliot Rodnick, were some of the really, excuse me, researchers on uh, family interaction and psychopathology. So we were getting just big doses in our classes. But when I, in my first session, my first case in the psychology clinic uh, at UCLA, it was a family. It was two parents and two kids. And I was uh, new at it, so I was, I was sort of intimidated. And I let my uh, co-therapist, who was an advanced student, uh, do most of the talking. But that allowed me to sit back and watch what was going on. And I was just fascinated watching the family process. And I actually got brave enough to make a few comments about what I was seeing. And that, that just got me totally hooked right there. I had never thought about psychologists doing relationship therapy, but um, that, that really got me going on it. I also did um, an internship at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles and did a lot of family therapy there. We actually had a family therapy seminar there. So uh, by the time I was done with all that, came out of graduate school, I, I knew that I wanted to focus on families and couples. That's great. Hi, this is Don. And again, Eli, it's a pleasure being with uh, you and our audience today. For me, the origin of this really was when I was in graduate school at the University of North Carolina. And I had, I had not done any couples work and was not planning on being a couple specialist at all. And I had an office mate who was also in graduate school, a guy named Neil Jacobson, who ended up being a really major figure in the field. But Neil and I were grad students, and there was nobody here at UNC who did couples work at all. But Neil was really the first of the two of us that got interested in this area. And as office mates, the two of us were just kicking around ideas. And Neil decided he wanted to do a couples therapy treatment study for his dissertation. Behavior therapy was young, and people were thinking about, can you apply these these principles to relationships? But there was really very little written. There were a couple of articles sort of suggestive of how you might do this with couples by Bob Weiss. So Neil spoke with Bob some, and then Neil and I just kept talking as grad students about, hey, this would really be neat to do. How would we do it? So we didn't really have any faculty here to advise us, but we just sort of made up (laughs) what we thought would be a a really appropriate application of behavioral principles to working with couples and uh, decided to pursue it. And Neil did for his dissertation. He and I and a friend of ours were the first therapist with a therapist in it. It turned out that this was the first randomized controlled trial of couples therapy conducted. And it was just hilarious from the standpoint of, wow, this was a couple of grad students sort of trying to put ideas together. As a therapist in that study, uh, I fell in love with it. It's one of those experiences in life where something clicks and you know it's a match for you. 
And it also was so clear, well, this is really beneficial to couples who have been struggling and really having a very, very hard time. So suddenly my whole career goals changed. I'm so glad you brought up Neil because I actually did not know that you guys were grad students together in the sense that I believe he is a name in the field. Obviously, when I think of scientists, practitioners, I think of Neil Jacobson, somebody that used outcome studies, the first of its kind to refine his model. That that must have been incredibly rich for the two of you all. Neil, I believe, would even be remembered uh, more strongly had he not passed away so early. I've been in the field about 20 years, and that's about I think exactly when he passed away, you know, if you were studying couples therapy 30, 40 years ago, you were studying behavior exchange and problem solving communication techniques. That was the foundation for everything as it is your couple's cognitive behavioral therapy. But I'm curious where you and Neil were on the same page and where you diverged. Yeah, we were uh, on the same page in the and we never were contrary to each other. It's just we sort of evolved in different directions with an awareness of that the model needs to grow. So you're exactly right. Uh, this, this early work was incredibly behavioral. It, it didn't ignore other factors, but really the logic was sort of, uh, well, people are behaving badly towards each other. And how they think about it and how they feel towards each other are important. But if you just get them to behave differently, then they'll start feeling better towards each other and they'll start to view each other and think about each other differently. So it was just a very sort of basic behavioral application of principles to, to dyadic relationships. And it, it seemed to really be helpful. But hopefully, if you're thoughtful and you continue working in the area, uh, you realize that there are things that you've left out and that you've missed and that you need to evolve. Uh, and in, in life seems to go from the simple to the complex rather than the reverse. <laughs> and so it's, you realize that it's much more complicated uh, than how people simply are behaving towards each other is crucial, but that's not it. We're going to get into the model here in a second. I'm curious how the two of you guys met. Well, yeah, that's, that's a, that actually I'm talking about major influences. So when I, uh, I, I moved to uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and I was at a place called the Marriage Council of Philadelphia. It's one of these pioneering uh, units uh, in the family therapy field. And, but when I was there, in grad school, I had read a lot of Aaron Beck's work and was fascinated with that. And I was always thinking about you know, that um, I, I was mostly sort of following the same tradition and focusing on communication patterns and behavioral aspects. But I was thinking about these, these couples, they're, they're interpreting each other and they sure shoot by each other a lot. And I'd really like to start to think about how to apply some cognitive therapy principles uh, to the couple's work. I actually moved over to working with Beck at his Center for Cognitive Therapy in Philadelphia for a couple of years. And uh, at that point, I started to write things. I wrote in 1982, I published an article called Cognitive Therapy for Couples, and uh, that sort of started the whole thing for me. And then I started to attend the uh, Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, and I met this guy called Don Balcom, uh, <laughs> and we started to uh, listen to each other, go to each other's talks, started to talk about it, and we, we just found this, this sort of partnership that's sort of putting together cognitive aspects that I'd been focusing on more and more and all the, the rich behavioral stuff that he'd been doing. So we actually met at the conference and started to interact a lot. Yeah, uh, shockingly, a very similar kind of a memory. Uh, Norm and I didn't know each other. We were having very parallel thought processes <laughs> in two different states. 
uh, it was the same thing for me that this behavioral model looked like it was a good basis for thinking about couples, but goodness, it was simplistic and that you needed to look at this in a richer way. And likewise, I'd been reading the work of Beck and Ellis and other sort of cognitively oriented people and it's having the very same reaction Norm did. So I was, I was thinking about this and actually doing a, starting to do a treatment study. And there was a particular conference where there was a symposium and Norm was listed. And the title of it is like, oh, I got to go hear this. It sounds similar to what I'm thinking about. It was one of these moments where Norm got up and gave a talk. It was like, wow, this guy's reading my mind. Uh, this is so consistent. This is frightening. And so I was one of these groupies that came up at the end of the symposium <laughs> waiting to speak to Norm to say, wow, uh, can we go get a cup of coffee? We need to talk. And we did. And uh, uh, it, that was it from there. Uh, we started to work on treatment studies together. We started to think together. And then you get to one of those points after a while where you say, gosh, we really ought to write a book on this. And so we did. And so we've just had this amazing collaboration for decades now. Yes, a beautiful uh, friendship, uh, both personal and professional, the two of you all have. So let's talk about, you know, as we said, research has informed this model and uh, right, uh, traditional behavioral couples therapy, you know, with its emphasis on behavior exchange and problem solving communication. You know, obviously, uh, what Jacobson found from his series of outcome studies is, you know, it worked for some of the people and even for some of the people at work that the, the gains were not maintained. So there was obviously constraints at other levels and you guys picked these cognitive constraints. So let's talk uh, for, for someone that knows CBT, again, probably no matter what discipline you are, psychology, MFT, social work, people will say has CBT because of its wide dissemination and easy to obtain manuals. Most people know what CBT is. Let's talk about how CBT for couples uh, is different. And if you've never really been exposed to that, the, the major things that you think set it apart from traditional CBT? Yeah, I, I got a really heavy dose of traditional cognitive therapy at, at Beck Center. And, you know, there, when you look at it, the, the types of cognitions that people tend to differentiate are, are automatic thoughts, the things that sort of stream of consciousness thinking in the moment uh, versus schemas, which are more longstanding structures and you know, they, so you carry them with you, develop them, you know, often early in life and so forth. But when Don and I started to really look at the literature and we were looking at really a lot of sort of not just clinical literature, but a lot of basic research on cognition. And there's a lot of that, you know, there, we looked at attributions, uh, looked at uh, various types of types of, you know, schema structures. So we came up with uh, a typology of five types of cognitions that seem to be supported pretty much in the literature that seem to be very relevant to couples. And two of them are a sort of schema-like sort of uh, uh, sort of long-standing uh, beliefs that you have. So some of those are assumptions about the way things work in the world, and some are uh, standards. Uh, we all have standards about the way we think things should be. And then there was all the research on, on attributions, the inferences people make about things they, they observe and what's causing those. So, you know, couples do that constantly. One person says something, the other person uh, attributes uh, some kind of a motive to what they just did or said and then reacts to that. We also looked at um, expectancies. Uh, again, there was a lot of research on expectancies. Uh, 
in terms of the predictions that people make about what's going to happen next. So if I walk into the room and my partner has a certain look on her face, maybe I shouldn't bring up that sensitive topic right now because I'm expecting that we're going to have trouble uh, if I do that. And then the other was uh, selective perceptions that, you know, at any point, uh, person, there's a lot of stuff going on, whether it's in a couple interaction or anything else that we notice certain things and we overlook other things. And those perceptual biases often get us into some trouble too. They're all you know, really natural cognitive processes. They're not dysfunctional in themselves, but they certainly can be if they're inappropriate or distorted and so forth. So Don and I started to really focus in on, <clears throat> on that typology. And in terms of, therefore, how does it differ from doing individual CBT? Uh, I, I think there are probably uh, a couple of things, <laughs> and one of them is not focal to cognitive behavioral approaches to working with couples. It's just couples therapy in general, is that when you're working with an individual, a lot of what they are talking about in a therapy session, they're often reporting what's going on in the outside world, whereas if you're doing any kind of couples therapy, uh, it's right there in front of you that you're seeing that process play out uh, right there uh, so what that means is that that's an incredible opportunity to see it but it's obviously it's a challenge you got to be able to think quickly crisply and be able to intervene quickly and that's not focal to cognitive behavioral approaches but what that means is working with an individual versus working with a couple whether it's in cbt or any other theoretical model is that well uh, it's great you're seeing it play out right in front of you, but you better be able to process quickly and intervene right on the spot. And so, and from a CBT standpoint, you're going to be attending to how they're behaving towards each other. You need to get some sense of how they're processing and thinking about it, and also what their emotional response is, because it's obviously you're talking about intimate relationships, people's emotional responses are crucial. So it, it, the clinical aspect of it is complicated because from a theoretical standpoint, your model is more complex because within a given individual, how people think about things, the emotional responses they're having and their behaviors, those are all interrelated. They kind of work together as a system. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, the emotional part. In fact, I remember I've seen you both work. Don, you had this great uh, video uh, APA put out several years ago where you're working with this couple and you're you're working the basics of the model. You're starting out with some active listening and some speaker listener, however you want to call it. And but you really focus the couple. You know the the video I'm talking about, Don. You you do a beautiful job of, of focusing the couple on the emotional impact, which makes the enactment which makes the exchange so much more powerful so i think one of the myths about cbt is because it uses you know works with faulty cognition and automatic negative thoughts is that there's not an emotional component behind this work but it's actually a very powerful component of your all's work uh, uh, could you say a little more about that yeah sure so this is that continuing evolution certainly for years norm and i were trying to figure out how to integrate cognitions into to your work and your thinking and that's important, and again, that's part of people's internal subjective experience, how they're thinking about things. They're also having huge emotional reactions. So that I think that we've evolved a model that really, hopefully, is respectful of all three of these domains of how people are emotionally react, um, how they're thinking about it, and how they're behaving. And those just play off each other constantly. 
So we really see all three of those as crucial. So I, I do think on occasion people will think back to 1970s of, oh, you're just doing behavior exchanges. It's like, oh, goodness, nothing is further from the truth. It's a, a model that we try to incorporate the role of emotions in a very central way. So you, you've got that going on with each person, their cognitions, their emotions, and their behaviors. And then it's not just those three things within a given individual, is that people were responding to each other as well. So if people pick up on each other's emotional response and react to that. They pick up on each other's behaviors and they react to that. If they verbalize an, an attribution, you did this because you wanted to hurt me, they're going to respond to that. So whereas with the, you got the intra-individual, within an individual, the cognitions, behavior, and emotions for each person, but now they're reacting to each other's as well. Correct. It's hard enough to challenge someone's automatic negative thoughts if it's just a one-on-one. But when you have the partner right there and they become yes. defensive and reactive, it's a whole nother, whole nother beast and animal. Yeah, you have to be. Excuse me. You have to be really tactful in, in sort of exploring a person's thoughts because their partner's sitting there, and you know it could become ammunition for them in their next response. So you have it's uh, it's going sort of treading softly, but still moving ahead and having people increasingly look at the way they're interpreting each other's behavior. In cognitive therapy, uh, you know, the term emotional reasoning is used a lot, and that's where a person uses their emotional cues as as data to make some kind of judgment about what's going on. So I've seen couples where a person starts to become very anxious about what their, their partner's doing and they look at their anxiety and it's like, if I feel it's this bad, it must be awful. And, they, and then it just sort of escalates the whole thing and they, they're not doing any self-soothing to be able to step back and say, well, what's really going on here? You mentioned emotional reasoning and I think when we think of these common cognitive distortions that cognitive behavioral therapists work with clients on it, as it pertains to couples, what, what are the most common cognitive distortions do you see besides this emotional reasoning? I imagine uh, all or none thinking is, is, is big too. You always do this. You never do that. Very inflammatory to a partner. What else do you guys right. see a lot of? And I, I, I point that one out to people often and they can easily step back and sometimes have a sheepish grin that, yeah, that doesn't really always happen. And that, you know, the importance of sort of not you know, thinking of things in a continuum. Um, overgeneralization is a big one uh, in terms of taking one instance of something happening and saying that, again, that sort of overlaps a little bit with the all or nothing thinking, well, this, this, is, this is our whole relationship is this way. That, that's a big one. Um, personalization, uh, taking something that may not have anything to do with you very personally. So one's partner seems to be upset about something and the, the other, you know, the person immediately thinks it's a criticism of them. So there, there are a number of those, and I actually I, I do use the um, handout of cognitive distortions as, as sort of an interesting psychoeducational thing to discuss with couples, and I I have to be very careful about that. That's the again the issue of having two people in the room. Uh, people are very happy to point out their their partner's cognitive distortions, and I have I truly try to get them to focus on what are the ones that you do. Easy to see it in somebody else, harder to see it in yourself. Right. Yeah, and Norm, I think, is doing a, a lovely job of giving you, as you had asked, some of those specifics. And and a lot of that flows from just an overall mindset. Is that once people get into a lot of relationship distress, there's just this sort of overall negative perspective that's going to cloud the whole thing. So you, my attributions for why you did that are going to be put forth in a negative way. My, my expectancies about what's going to happen in the future are going to be negative. It's as if that overall sort of mindset 
just leads to just incredible sort of overriding negativity on a lot of the different cognitive fronts. And, and what you end up seeing is that a lot of the kind of cognitive distortions that happens with relationship distress looks very similar to what you see when somebody's clinically depressed. It's the same, which is why there's such a nice fit. And in fact, if you look at the empirical literature, you're going to find there are significant correlations between depression and relationship distress. And I think one of those common factors in there is just that sort of negative cognitive mindset that people get into when they are depressed or when they're relationally distressed. And then you just see it playing out in just multiple ways. For sure. And that's why when you see someone that's depressed with marital conflict, couples therapy is the treatment of, of, of choice for sure. You guys are talking about a lot of great stuff. People are familiar with the idea of a thought record as far as charting out these automatic negative thoughts and you know how you felt and what you did about it. How do you use um, a basic CBT instrument like a thought record with couples? I, I don't use it all the time, but I uh, but I use the principle of it, and I, I do give, give people copies of them. The idea of when things start to escalate between you and your partner, uh, one way of slowing it down is to notice that you're upset and to uh, start to pay attention to any thoughts you're having at the time uh, that seem to be linked to the, the upset emotions and um, how you're interpreting what's going on and then how that leads you to, to take the next step of how you respond to your partner. So I have had people actually work through the thought records and filling out the columns. We were having a discussion about finances and my partner said this and then I started to get really angry and I was thinking da 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 about my partner doesn't have any, is irresponsible about money and it just gets me not only angry but scared that my partner is going to run us into the ground and you know so that we we talk about that in the session and the partner actually gets to hear what's going on internally and the other person and they can then you know hear that not only is, is my partner angry at me and, and chastising me but gee i guess my partner is scared about something maybe we should talk about that for me i would say that almost all the therapy that i that i do whether it's working with couples or individuals I would say it's principle-based rather than these are the specific techniques and this is exactly how you need to do them. Is that we're trying to, for example, couples help couples make changes based on what we understand are healthy principles of how to interact with each other and treat each other in a caring, close, committed relationship. And so I, I think of a form as a tool and it's not sacred. And part, part of this is, uh, I think also just therapist style and preference. I don't use many forms, to be honest. I think you have to adapt to the couple that you're dealing with. And forms are really good for some people for providing structure and pushing them to go for greater clarity. And so if that is going to be helpful to that couple, great. Then uh, use a form similar to what Norm is talking about. With other couples, they don't deal with the world that way. This feels like a horrible homework assignment. They're fighting you for it. It's that it doesn't feel real, and so I'm not going to try to push that. Uh, and so it's not going to be, no, we do this with forms and fill out these forms and complete these forms. It is that I'm trying to figure out how to help them be self-observant and to be able to be aware of what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And so if a form helps provide the structure for somebody to do that, that's great. But um, this is where I think you can get techniques 
confused with principles. It's not like, oh, we must use the following kinds of forms. It's I'm so glad you said that because, you know, there is another misconception. I mean, as I said, one of the reasons people like this model, especially beginning therapist, it's manualized, you know, 12 sessions, 16 sessions. But what you're saying as an actual model developer is no, you know, the client has enough problems. You, them trying to fit to your way of working shouldn't be another uh, shouldn't be a, added to their list of problems. So you find what works with them, and you flexibly adapt principles rather than techniques. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear that as a as kind of a common factors guy and the guy that looks at the fit between uh, model and client. But uh, it is refreshing to hear you to hear you say that. Let's talk yeah, about. I actually agree yeah. with that very strongly. As yeah. I mentioned, I use it sometimes, but. I- I actually use it sort of with the, the behavioral principle of stimulus control. It's sort of a cue or reminder that they don't have to, you know, have to fill out the form, but I, they take it home and they have it. Just like I also give them as another handout, which is uh, communication guidelines for a speaker and listener. And they don't have to be using that, you know, like uh, all the time, but they have it. And it's a reminder to, oh yeah, we're supposed to pay attention to our thoughts or we're supposed to do this. It sort of gets into the principle of what are constructive things to do. Wonderful. So again, I have two preeminent scholar uh, scientist practitioners here. So let's talk about the scientist part. You guys have evolved your thinking based just like Jacobson with his model based on your research findings. So talk to us a little about what research for cognitive behavioral therapy for couples has told us and how it's influenced your thinking over the years. Uh, For me, it's worth making a distinction in terms of sort of two major ways in which that works. Because overall, I would I, I think of uh, cognitive behavioral couple therapy as being research based, and again, that doesn't mean sterile. It just means that we like to get some data that help to guide us, and I think that happens in two ways. One is what I would call basic research and basic findings, is that we really need to understand how couples interact. We need to understand what they do. We need to understand how they think, and some of that before getting to treatment research means basic research of, wow, bringing couples in, have them communicate with each other, find good, thoughtful ways to code that interaction so we can understand what those interaction processes look like. So I I think that it's been a, a field and an orientation that just has a lot of respect for basic research on couples And if you can live in that world where you can integrate thinking about uh, basic research and intervention, you can take those basic findings and that should influence your clinical interventions. So I think we've learned a lot from basic research, which we then use to develop it, which then gets you to the second phase is that this is an approach that says we all as clinicians have ideas of what we think work. Let's really evaluate it, which gets you then to the treatment outcome research of let's let's create our interventions in a replicable way, and then let's test them and see if they work. And the, the early studies uh, that you know Don did on uh, were were basically outcome studies looking at the impact of cognitive behavioral interventions on couples for their satisfaction level and some changes in behavior and so forth. I also ran a, a clinical trial uh, early on looking at communication training for couples. Um, so as uh, as things have progressed, it's like how do you add in other components such as you know the cognitive components as Don did, and then when I think. One of the exciting things that's happened in the past uh, number of years is is looking at how CBT for couples can be adapted to 
to be used to address a lot of problems that in, in sort of psychological and, and physical health that traditionally have been treated through individual therapy. And uh, Don's doing a lot of that in terms of interventions for various types of psychopathology. And then the other thing is to sort of address some beyond uh, sort of general couple distress, looking at some severe couple problems that can be addressed with uh, CBT principles. So Don and his colleagues have done a lot of work on infidelity. Um, I've done a fair amount on a CBT approach to working with couples who have been experiencing partner aggression. So that, that stuff's been really exciting. Yes, uh, it, it's been applied to so many different populations and settings. You guys have, as I said, been on the forefront and still finding a way to do that. Some of the, uh, some of the people listening to the show, in addition to being frontline clinicians, they are interested in that. You know, gone are the days where you can get funding just to study outcome and couples therapy. You have to tie it in to larger issues and other problems. Talk about your evolution, like uh, in that way, as far as adapting it to other populations and problems. Is that driven by clinical interest or funding cycles or both? Well, I would say probably both because we have to be practical and it's, uh, you know, it, it's expensive to run studies like that and we need some support. So we certainly have to take that into account. But I mean, I, I think that our, uh, the studies that I've done, the studies that Don's been involved in are, are very much driven by conceptual you know, concerns. Of like how, how can we best address people's life problems and, uh, and the, you know, the, the uh, entry point through the relationship is often very, very important. There's so much evidence uh, that people's individual well-being is influenced tremendously by their significant relationships. So it's the place to intervene. And I know in the in the case of the work I've done with uh, with partner aggression, I know it's uh, as, as a couple therapist, you run into it, you know, constantly. And the thing is, what do you do with that? And and you know, traditionally there was a lot of um, concern in the field about. Uh, seeing people conjointly, that it was going to put people at risk, and I, uh, I'm as concerned about that as anybody. But you know, my my colleagues and I who worked on this this stuff uh, together. You know, we're, we're thinking that there's, uh, in terms of ethics, it's it's uh, it's also not ethical to let people keep doing things and because they're staying together and they're continuing to do things that put them at risk and intervening could be the, the best thing to do. So what we tried to do is, is think about a way to do some couple interventions and in a way that, that made significant changes and kept people safe. And that's what we've, we've focused on. Yeah, I love that in the sense that it used to be in our field. Yeah, if, if there was any domestic issue, domestic violence, that was considered uh, an indicator not to do couples therapy. We know mm -hmm. now the difference between situational violence, which uh, even the best couples could have, and that is obviously something that's workable, and the difference between that and intimate terrorism, which mm -hmm. is obviously not good. But yeah, your, your work, as we could do another whole show on that, has been pioneering in that, taking that basic CBT framework and, and moving on to that, and, and much like... Nor mentioned, Don, your pioneering work with couples and infidelity and talk about your interest in that and how the CBT framework fits with that. And I, I love how you've also kind of brought into the field the naming of, uh, you know, instead of calling them a cheater, the difference between a participating partner and an injur injured partner. I love the languaging. <laughs> that, that was a Don Balcom original, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, you know, I think, at least for me, ideas about how to help couples in different contexts comes from a variety of areas, but I'll be honest, the main one for me is from my own clinical work with couples or supervising couples. Uh, Norm and I both are active clinicians. We always have been. We see couples ourselves, so it's not just something you're reading from the literature or, or studying in a laboratory. And so most of my evolving ideas about 
couples intervention really are based on clinical experiences. And so if you're going to work with couples, you're giving an example of, well, you're going to have couples where there's been infidelity or extra dietic relationships, whatever you want to call it, where they're, they've, they're engaged with somebody else in a fairly intimate way that feels like a boundary violation to their committed relationship. My experience was that our basic cognitive behavioral model, and this is often the case of what's driven, at least for me, and I think Norm and I together, because we do a lot of work together, and then we each do some individual evolution, um, is that you realize you got limitations in your model. Is that, oh, well, this, the, our model doesn't exactly, we can build on it, but it doesn't tell us how to handle the following. And that turned out to be the case with infidelity. It was that, oh, you can't just say, I've quit engaging in that negative behavior, let's move on. Partners won't let you do that. Uh, <laughs> they're not ready to do that. And so we had to think about how do we conceptualize this. And without going into detail, it was that, oh, this looks like an interpersonal trauma. Traumas disrupt your basic assumptions about the world, in this case, your partner and your relationship, and you can't move forward because things feel unsafe. So until it's a, it's a way of suddenly thinking about it, this is not just behavior that you've stopped, so we're fine. I said, no, you've disrupted the way that I understand you and think about you, and it's not safe being in a relationship with you anymore. So it meant, oh, bring in the whole all of our knowledge about what happens when somebody experiences a trauma. It, this actually looks a lot like PTSD, even though you can't give the diagnosis in this case. And so it requires you to be able to expand your model to say, oh, there are additional factors. There's a trauma component to this. And what do we know about people experiencing trauma? And in this case, a person feels like the trauma has been perpetrated by their partner. And what is that going to look like and how are you going to deal with it? So I, I think that a lot of what has pushed Norm and me forward uh, together and in our individual evolutions is recognizing that couples live under a lot of different circumstances. They confront a lot of different issues. We've done a lot of work with couples in psychopathology and couples with health problems. If you work with couples... Um, Any time at all, you realize people have individual complicating factors. People get cancer. People get depressed. You've got to figure out how to incorporate this into working with a couple. Uh, so I just think all of these areas, you realize you've got a basic model, but you're going to have to expand it and adapt mm -hmm. it. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful overlay if, if you've never read Don and colleagues' work around infidelity and integration of uh, trauma work with CBT. And Norm, another thing I'm a big fan of, of your work is, again, couples fight. You know, they have strong values and beliefs around sex, but also mm -hmm. money. So the work you've done around CBT with kind of couples and finances, say a little bit mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, I've done a fair amount of that work with my colleague, Mariana Falconier, uh, and uh Actually, what I'd like to do, I'll get back to that in a second. I wanted to stay at the level of, in a sense of, of expanding a model because that's actually sure. a, a, a good example of that. But um, for the since 1983, I've been on the faculty at, uh, in the Department of Family Science at University of Maryland. And it's an interdisciplinary uh, department. And it's had a big influence on me because my colleagues are people who are um, public health people, human development people, sociologists. So, And I've just uh, been surrounded by people uh, who look at context and look at um, different ecological approaches to things. And Don and I, in, in the, the uh, book we published in 2002, 
uh, which we call an enhanced cognitive behavioral couple therapy, um, looked at uh, the fact that in order to have a successful relationship, you have to do all these, you know, kind of constructive things in your dyad, but you have to work as a team to cope with all kinds of life stresses. You know, Don was talking about the stress of somebody developing cancer in a relationship, but there are, you know, people's financial problems, which you just alluded to. Uh, there are, you know, people have... Uh, extended family and a sick family member and so forth, their, their jobs, etc. So that uh, part of our approach uh, clinically and also looking at its effects on research is looking at these contextual factors that need to be you know, taken into account in assessment and also in your intervention. So the, you know, the work on financial stress that uh, you're, you're talking about is really looking at the ways that people cope when they have financial strain. And financial strain is partly a cognitive uh, experience. It's like you have to think that your situation is bad in some way. Uh, and, and then if you do, then how do you as a, as a dyad cope with that? Well, how do you communicate about it? How do you problem solve about it? So um, yes, that is a good example of applying that, that sort of contextual approach to a specific relationship problem. We don't have anybody on this show that isn't uh active clinician so that's why i was excited to talk to you guys and it is it is a a balance sometime between being premier scholars but but also staying clinically relevant which as you said don really informs your evolution i'm the same way anything i've ever i wanted to study it enhances my the idea the way i think about research the way i think about training therapists so how do you guys balance your extensive research programs of research with staying clinically active just for our listeners that wonder how much clinical work you still do at this stage of your career um i i've had an active practice uh since i got out of grad school basically and i how do you do it well um i stay up late <laughs> i see my you know since couples and and families and individuals are, are often you know most available in the evenings i see my people in an office in my home and uh, I do it in the evenings. Uh, I do have. I usually work at home on Friday, so I'll see some people during the day on Friday too. But it's uh, it, it's that sort of time balance, and it's complicated, but it's worked pretty well over the years. Uh, for me, it certainly shifts the amount of time that I'm myself serving as a therapist. Like Norm, I've done that from the day I walked out of graduate school, and have continued that for decades. Uh, at this point, I love doing it balance you know that continues to change because life is a dynamic process and opportunities and obligations shift uh, but one of the interest interesting I was talking to a, a young scholar recently uh, and we were talking about life balance and she said something that I just found so absolutely intriguing she said when I think about balance I have to think about what balances me what do I need to do such that the impact on me is feels, helps me feel balanced in my life? It's not just how do I allocate energy to this domain and that domain. It's that also what do I need to feel balanced? And I have to do clinical work to feel balanced. Otherwise, I feel irrelevant. One is I just thoroughly enjoy and value feeling like I'm being of assistance to other people. I would not be a good researcher. Uh, I would not be a good supervisor if I'm not doing it, staying alive and experiencing it. So I, I know that I have to do that so that I feel like a balanced person as a professional. So for me, part of that is that I'm an active clinician therapist myself. Uh, at the university, I run a couples therapy clinic. So I am listening to multiple therapy sessions every week that the doctoral students are conducting. We do treatment outcome research. 
uh, I listen to those therapy sessions. I don't want to just see numbers at the end of a treatment study and try to make sense of them. I need to listen to what's happening in those therapy sessions. So there are just multiple ways that it keeps me alive clinically in the moment, but certainly serving as a, a therapist directly is a very important part of that process. You know, beautifully said. You know, this is a show where you get to hear, you know, the, as we're doing this hour, the, the stories behind the model developer. Tell us something about you guys that can't be captured in a standard interview or reading a journal article or captured in your book. Tell us something about the uh, the person behind the, the therapist and researcher. Actually, it's sort of related to what Don was getting at. I, I One of the things I really enjoy, always have in my career, is is teaching and mentoring. And uh, so I was uh, director of the uh, Couple and Family Therapy program for 15 years at University of Maryland. I just uh, uh, stopped doing that a year ago. And actually, I, I uh, as a point of information, I just retired in June. Um, but I, um, one of the things that I enjoy so much is, is sitting with, with grad students and watching videos of their sessions and brainstorming with them and, and just watching them grow as, as uh, people and clinicians over the years. Uh, that, that's, that's been just as rewarding to me as any other part of my career. It's been great. Uh, something to, to know that won't come through in an interview. Part of that is sort of the person, but it's also about the actual treatment itself. Uh, I think you also have to understand and accept that any kind of theoretical model or clinical interventions and so forth, the people who are developing those and writing about them is that there's a lot of themselves in there. There's no way around that. Nobody's just dealing with some outside world. Your own experiences in life are going to shape the way that you see them. Uh, We know that. And so your own experiences and relationships are going to impact how you think about relationships and what makes them work well and what gets them in trouble. Uh, I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate in life to have a real personal solid family of origin. And then my own current family with my wife and my children is that it is going to impact your overall view of the world. And mine, I've been fortunate ends up being a pretty positive one. The one of the things that I think is crucial to understand about cognitive behavioral couple therapy and any kind of couple therapy, and Eli, you feel free to chime in with us here as well, is that what ends up, and I think it's partly a fault of uh, cognitive behavior therapy in general, is that it can be written about as if it's just a set of techniques. And I think any this there's nothing that's further from the truth. Uh, what we call common factors or the therapeutic relationship and the therapeutic alliance, I think is absolutely crucial. So we will write about different types of interventions, but if those are not done within the context of a warm, supportive, caring relationship with a good, sensitive clinician, you're not going to do the job. It's not going to be nearly as effective. So I, I do a lot of workshops and we show a lot of videos and I do a lot of live role plays. And then we always stop along the way and we discuss them at the end of those videos and, and uh, role plays. And uh, without question, the most frequent comment that I get is, Don, but it was the way that you did it that struck me. How did you do that? That's what I need to understand. The technique is clear, but... Uh, the way in which you come across helped me understand what you did and how you did that. And sometimes they like it, <laughs> the way I did it. And they want to be able to 
asked me to articulate what that is about. So I think any good form of couple therapy and certainly cognitive behavioral approaches, which I think can get missed because it's hard to put that in print and write it as to what that is like. Uh, but I think those common factors that cut across different theoretical orientations to couples therapy, and some of them are very similar to what you see in individual therapy, I think they are absolutely crucial is that you've got to have good, thoughtful, insightful uh, therapists that can relate to a couple well. The the alliance, what we think about, as you said, the therapeutic relationship, it is a a necessary but insufficient form that you have to have it. You can't imagine doing any good therapy without it. You're right, though. We believe, um, at least uh, my group of thinkers believe, uh, models are important. You have to have a model. It is a guide map. And again, once you know multiple models, you can see these common factors that are the vehicles uh, that 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 operate change. So, you know, when I think of the alliance or these therapist factors, and, and you are right, Donna, I could give you, um, as I just showed your a video a couple of weeks ago to my couples therapy class, and they were impressed with, yes, how you set up the speaker listener and how you work with it, but it was your warmth. It was your authenticity. That is what worked in that session. And that was a session where you're doing a consultation where you had just met the couple. So it is really nice to hear you say that because most model developers, they will say it is the specific ingredient ingredients of their model that how change occurs. But but you guys are saying, no, it's really not the ingredients. It's it's A, it's a series of principles. It's not specific techniques. And and B, it are these other extra therapeutic factors that really make a difference. So, I mean, I, I just think that's awesome. Do you agree with that, Norm? Absolutely. I strongly agree with both of you. And I, I, I've seen myself change over the years. I think in my early years, I was more focused. Maybe I was out of anxiety, wanted to do everything right. I was sort of trying being sort of technique oriented and just uh, it, the, the relationship I have with my clients now is just such a big part of it. And it's, uh, uh, I totally agree with the common factors, uh, the important and the therapeutic alliance. And, and you know, again, in, in couple therapy, it, it's, uh, it's that challenge of simultaneously having a good relationship with both people. So they both feel like, yeah, he, he understands me. He, he gets it and he's not taking sides. And, and he really, um, you know, we, we have, Good relationships, strong relationships, very important. Why do you guys think more model developers like you are not able to freely kind of admit that? Because people, they really, you know, there's these general principles of change and there is model-specific language, but there's these common elements that if you don't get caught up in the lexicon or the verbiage of your favorite model, it's very clear or similar things. And if anybody sees CBT, you know, the most widely adapted empirically supported treatment there is, uh, many psychologists and strict proponents of CBT, they hold on to that specific ingredients debate. Why do you think more people um, are not able to reflect on what you just said? Again, because you, you're, you're preaching to the choir and me, but it is very refreshing to hear you guys say that. I mean, I, I do, I do see people being increasingly paying attention to, to therapeutic alliance, but I, I think maybe part of it may be a little contextual. There's so much pressure these days on having things uh, be evidence based to get support for it, and you know, sell the model basically. And to do that, you have to show that your model is the effective model. And I think that may sometimes put pressure on people to uh, describe, portray their models in terms of the specific, you know, the, the specific ingredients that are you know, special and effective about their models. But, but still, if you, if you watch videos of people from a variety of models, you can see the same stuff that you can see with, you know, in, in, uh, in Don's video, that there's a big part of how they're, 
they're relating to their clients that you you know you, it's clearly that's a part of it. yeah it, it, it's twofold uh, I think just with regard to the similarities one is that there's sort of the general common factors that we're talking about for example therapeutic alliance and then when you actually look at the actual interventions uh, what you're going to find is a lot of them overlap people are just using different terms they've got their own model and they're labeling it different ways so in our my couple therapy practical we watch videos of people from other theoretical orientations and we're not trying to reduce their work down to hours but students are often commenting that oh that's what we do within cognitive variable couple therapy we just have a different label for it and so i, I think there is a, a lot of commonality and the reason for it I, I do think it's that you don't stand out as much if you say there's a lot of similarity by pointing out what's distinct about you is what can help your work stand out. I think I'm, I am a believer of let's also look at the empirical data. And one, whatever empirical data we have about common factors in psychotherapy in general says it's a whoppingly important factor in predicting outcome. Second is if you look at almost every meta-analysis that's been done on couples therapy, there are a few couples therapies that look like they're effective and they look equivalent. Uh, and sometimes, i be honest, it kind of is a head-scratcher for me when people start proposing that our treatment clearly is more effective than these others, and I want to know where the data, because every meta-analysis I've ever looked at does not support that conclusion. So I think cognitive behavioral couple therapy does have the broadest research base, and it is effective, but I would not want to suggest at all that ours is the only approach that works or that it's more effective than the others. The data don't tell us that. And I think a lot of that has to do with cognitive factors. Amen. Wow, I couldn't have said any better than that. You, you guys are so vital. Norm, you said you just retired after a long, illustrious career at Maryland. Don, you have what we call broken the incest taboo in academia and that you have had a amazing career at the place where you got your doctoral degree at, at UNC. What, if anything, do you guys still want to accomplish or have left in this next stage of your work? People have asked me, like, what are you doing now that you're retired? And <laughs> for those of us who have had academic careers, it, there, it, it's unique in some ways. I, I'm still doing a bunch of the things that I did uh, before I retired this past June, I still uh, research projects going. I still am writing. I'm uh, still seeing my clients. I'm still doing some clinical teaching, uh, doing workshops. So it, it's not the kind of job where you walk out the door and you're you're done. Uh, so I, I I continue to do those things. But one of the things that uh, I, I think I'm paying more and more attention to and really excites me is um, uh, is getting involved in in sort of cultural adaptations of models. When you go from one culture to another, you know most of the therapy models have been developed in Western cultures and then people go around the world giving workshops on their models um, including CBT I've, you know done that Don's on that and you know we, we really have to be thinking about who uh, who we're talking to and what the family traditions are and the cultural traditions and so forth in each place and that uh, are we presenting a model that works as well uh, in various diverse cultures so that's that's an area I've been increasingly paying attention to and I uh, hope to do more of it 
and so needed to this idea. Can we take something and adapt it uh, to different populations and cultures? Even the best models uh, have to be, as we've been saying this hour, flexibly applied. So that that's awesome. So it doesn't really sound like you're retired, Norm. It sounds like you're uh, semi, I use that very loosely, retired. You're still doing all the things you love, which again is another common factor in everybody I've interviewed on this podcast in, in the first two seasons. They love what they do. Um, they're doing it because they love it, not because of the price tag attached to it or the ego attached to it. They're doing it because they it, it yeah. still it completes them. So it's I mean, it's nice. I'm I'm, uh, I'm spending much more time with my family. We have uh, some young grandchildren. I'm doing a lot of grandparenting things, which is a lot of fun. Um, I'm not going to faculty meetings, which is uh, pretty good. So uh, anyway, it's it's, uh, it's nice. Don, I will give you the last word. What uh, what's the uh, what are you up to? And certainly plug anything that you have coming up in 2020 that you'd like our listeners to know about. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I often ask myself, so what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> I need to self, I need to reflect on that on an ongoing kind of basis so that I can stay focused and trying to step back and think about what really excites me and what I have a passion for. It's many of the things I've always had a passion for in terms of couples therapy and couple research. But I think there is probably somewhat of a natural um, evolution, uh, which I'm experiencing in myself. And I would call this sort of a progression from what I would call investigation, integration, dissemination. Is that I love research and I'll always continue to engage in that investigative process. And at the same time, what I'm finding is that probably an increasing amount of my energy is on these latter two that I would call integration first, which is taking all of that. How do I pull it together? Uh, How do I make sense of it big picture wise? I love empirical research and doing another study, but I also need to step back and reflect and say, how do I pull all this together? So a, a goal, and it may sound grandiose, but I, I want to spend uh, a fair amount of time in the next few years developing what I think is a healthy model, uh, a, a more comprehensive model of healthy adult intimate relationships. I think we've got pretty good models of therapy uh, for couples, but some of it is almost based on we've got to get them to quit doing the destructive stuff. But I want to try to take our work and that of others and try to integrate this into a more comprehensive model of healthy relationship functioning. That's one. So that's the integrative aspect for me. The other part is dissemination. So it's investigation, integration, then dissemination. Is that um, I have a real commitment to if we're going to spend all this time and energy, you want this to be helpful to the people in the field who are frontline doing this. Um, It's not about journal articles or just writing a book. It's that is this really translating into making any kind of a difference? So uh, I'm very involved and engaged and feel very passionate about disseminating this work. Norm has just done an amazing job, for example, of taking that to Eastern cultures and how you have to de- do cultural adaptation. So uh, I think that is great. And a lot of my current dissemination work actually is in other countries. So I'm work- doing a fair amount of work with the National Health Service in England on in their real community clinics working with couples, how do you use cognitive behavioral couple therapy, particularly when they're presenting individual problems such as depression? So taking what we've learned and continue to learn and presenting it appropriately, some people 
say, oh, clinicians don't care about uh, empirical findings and research. Well, if it has relevance to them, they care about it a great deal. If you can't make that translation, then they won't. Uh, a lot of people won't. So I think of one of the things that I hope I contribute is helping to bridge that gap because Norm and I are both active clinicians. So we're always thinking about our empirical findings about does this really matter in the clinic room and how would that be the case. So I'm very invested in dissemination and how we also adapt our intervention for different populations. We're currently, it's, it's kind of surprising, but there's almost no empirical work on working with same-sex couples in couple therapy. People have written about it clinically, but we're trying to evaluate some interventions. So it's how do we take, adapt, and make this available to just a wide variety of populations? I think that's really what I have a real commitment to at this point. I mean, we, the field, needs that. I'm so excited. We need more Norm Epstein's and Don Balcom's. I, I can't thank you guys enough. This has been really fun for me. I learned a lot. I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure and a joy. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to share our perspectives with you and the audience. Eli, back with you. Such a refreshing conversation and exchange. You know, it's no secret my favorite part of this podcast series the last two years is doing these model developer pioneering interviews. Those are two of the most humble guys you'll find. And the most refreshing thing, without fault, when I have talked to model developers, both on the air and off the air, they will stick to that what makes their approach effective are the specific ingredients behind their model. It was just great to hear two people associated with cognitive behavioral couples therapy, the model that has the most empirical support behind it. And most pure cognitive behavioral therapists that I've talked to will swear by it is the specific ingredients that make that model effective. And here you have Don talking about these principles of application, the importance of how the treatment is delivered, the therapeutic alliance, these therapist factors, which it's no secret those uh, that know about my career, I'm all about common factors. Instead of evidence-based therapies, talking about evidence-based therapist. We broke out into a dialogue uh, talking about their model and to overall what makes therapies effective. And uh, let's talk about some of those books that I mentioned. There's the classic in the field, Enhanced Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Couples, a Contextual Approach by Epstein and Balcom, which outlines everything we talked about today. Go and check that one out. Another one I mentioned that has been very helpful both for me, for the therapist I train, and for also couples out there is Helping Couples Get Past the Affair, a Clinician's Guide. That's Don Balcom, Doug Snyder, and Christina Coop-Gordon, which applies CBT and really almost like a PTSD effect to an injured partner, somebody that's experienced infidelity, but uses a CBT framework to help couples get past the affair. Also, not mentioned, but I thought was very helpful, was one of Norm's most recent publication. It's around two and a half, three years old now. It's called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Sexual Dysfunction. He wrote that one along with Michael Metz and Barry McCarthy. AAMFT Podcast, where we strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. Those are two innovators for sure that are still vital. 
you can hear from other model developers like Sue Johnson, Chloe Madonis, Bill Doherty, Michelle Wiener Davis, among others in our archives. You can find those wherever you find your favorite podcast. I like Apple Podcasts. You can go to Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. You can also go to the aamft.org where you can see all of the archive editions of the AMFT podcast. Please drop us a line. I'm at Dr. Eli Live on Twitter. My email is info at elikaram.com. E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M. We'd love to hear from you. Your listener feedback is what drives our guests and the content of our shows. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic. More than 65 million Americans are currently experiencing family estrangement. In his new book, Fault Lines, sociologist Carl Pilmer presents a science-based guide on coping with and mending fractured families. Based on the first national survey on family estrangement, Fault Lines provides information on why rifts happen and what makes estrangement so painful, as well as tools and techniques for safe reconciliation. Get your copy of Fault Lines today from your favorite bookstore.